0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host. Today, I'm speaking with Dan Jones about his book on the men and women whose lives were intertwined with one of the bloodiest events in human history. The book is entitled Crusaders, The Epic History of the Wars for the Holy Lands. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to join us. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I'm a
1: historian. I write mostly about the Middle Ages. I've, uh, Crusaders is my eighth book. I've written about the Templars, about the Plantagenets, about the Wars of the Roses. I also make television programs, so I've presented a Netflix, a couple of seasons on Netflix of Secrets of Great British Castles. I've worked a little bit with HBO on Game of Thrones. I'm, you know, popular history is my thing. I really love telling stories. I really love uh, picking out the sort of weird, the wonderful, and the meaningful, and the relevant from from the period that I've chosen to study. And as I speak to you, I have a replica crusader sword in my hand, which I'm sort of waving around my office. So that's uh, that's just a little mental image for you to, um, to take you through the course of this interview.
0: Well, I have to applaud your multitasking there. <laughs> I, I have <laughs> to say that what you described there really encapsulates nicely what you've done in your book. I was wondering if you could explain to us what it was that led you to write a book about the crusaders. and What distinguishes your book from the other works that have been written over the decades about the crusades, many of which you reference in, in your own book?
1: I think there's probably two parts that uh, the answer to that very good question. And the first is why, you know, let's let's say why add to the great pile of books about the Crusades that have been written over the years. Stephen Runciman in the 1950s, Chris Tymon, Paul Cobb, uh, Tom Aspridge, Jonathan Phillips in, in more recent years, all brilliant, brilliant historians, great works about the Crusades. First, the first thing to say is that the Crusades are still there with us. They're there in the language. You'll hear every day that uh, people are, are crusading about this or crusading about that. I think Donald Trump the other day was talking about the Democrats being on a crusade. I read a, a news article that Joe Biden was on a crack house crusade, quote unquote, the other day. <laughs> you know, so it's there, I could fill up the next 45 minutes telling you stupid examples of people use, misusing the term crusade. But it's more seriously misused as well if you look at Islamist terrorists. ISIS, Al-Qaeda offshoots every time there's a terrorist atrocity, uh, suicide bombing. it's it's The credit is taken with the phrase, we've struck against citizens of the Crusader coalition. That is the propaganda view of the West from the Islamist terrorist world. Equally, the alt-right, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, racists, all enjoy, on the far right in the West, all enjoy using phrases like deus vault and images of the Crusades in order to further... a a sort of white supremacist agenda. So I'm saying lots of people are culpable here of misusing the word crusades, and I believe it's still important to keep thinking about how the crusades happened and how they pertain to our world today. Secondly, I would say that the important thing about the approach of this particular book that I've written, Crusaders, is the second R in that word. This is a book that proceeds through viewpoint chapters, taking us deep into the world of individual people Within the Crusades, cast from a, a big, you know, pluralist cast list, ranging from Latin Christians in the West, Greek Christians, Armenian Christians, Syrian Christians, Sunni, the Shia Muslims, Kurds, Turks, Arabs, pagans in the Baltic, Mongols, uh, heretics in southern France, men, women, and so on and so forth. I think that this is a, a, an approach to writing about the Crusades that I haven't seen done before. It it blends together the sort of viewpoint chapter technique that's popularized in fiction by people like George R. R. Martin running Game of Thrones, and it knits it into a proper scholarly understanding of what the Crusades are. So I think it's a new approach and it's a subject that has deep relevance for our times today. And so those two things combined with my interest in picking topics from my period, the Middle Ages, which translate to the world today. I, it just—it just felt like a very timely thing for me, me to be writing about at the moment.
0: One of the things that I really like about that approach you described is that you really convey a, a sense of earthiness to a subject about, uh, like the Crusades, because so many of the books that Beth Crusades—they're so wide-ranging that it's so easy to, uh, you know. Uh, lose sight of the individuals for this, uh, these events that sometimes these books that sometimes span centuries, and, and that earthiness I thought really came across in, in your uh, opening uh, uh, section where you are talking about uh, Roger of of, uh, of Sicily and and, and his uh, reaction to this proposal that his men bring, and I thought right there you nicely kind of take you know all of the uh, you know ideology, of the Crusades, and, and, and the vast span of time, and you and you immediately reduce it to the people. And I I just thought that was a a, a really nice way of opening it and and getting to a lot of those things that you've just described.
1: Well, I'm I'm glad you picked up on that. And I think that the way the book starts is kind of important. Um, I'm very conscious throughout this book not to follow previously trodden paths. And to take characters that are maybe lesser known wherever possible and let them lead the story, because it just gives you a different perspective. You know, it just gives you a different route into these times. Now, the the chapter you're referring to was critical in in building this book. The obvious option for starting a book about the Crusades is to take Pope Urban II at Clermont in 1095, standing up and preaching the First Crusade. And he's saying, fighting men of the Latin West, you know, Western Europe. Rise up now and go and help the emperor in Constantinople because the Turks are attacking his lands. And then we'll go on to Jerusalem and liberate them, quote, unquote, from, uh, from Muslim hands. OK, that, I've, you know, we've read that a million times. So I thought, well, I, well you know, what did, and it's, it's all over the, the French and Latin sources of the time. But like, I was like, what did other sources, what did the Islamic chroniclers say? And you go, you turn to the greatest one of the day, Ibn al-Athir. Iraqi chronicler, writing in the 13th century, looking back on the beginning of the Crusades. He doesn't talk about urban. He says it all starts in Sicily, and he tells the story you're referring to. The story is this. In Sicily, 1060s, the Normans had arrived. We normally think about the Normans in England, 1066, but the Normans were also in Southern Italy, Calabria, Apulia, heel and toe of the Italian boot, if you can picture that. They pushed down into Sicily, which was under Arab Muslim rule. They kicked the Arab Muslim rulers out of Sicily, There's two main Normans who do this. Robert Giscard, he goes off to the Balkans to fight against the Greeks. His brother, Roger, stays in Sicily, becomes Count Roger of Sicily. Now, Ibn Al-Athir, Islamic chronicler, says in around the early 1090s, that's when we have to place this anecdote. Down to Sicily comes some some ambassadors from a guy called Baldwin. Ibn Al-Athir is not clear who this Baldwin is, but there's lots of Baldwins around the Crusades. Don't worry about that. Baldwin sends his ambassadors down to Roger and they say to Roger, hey, Roger, can we use Sicily as a launch pad to invade the rich Islamic cities of uh, Muslim North Africa? You know, we could enrich ourselves and given that Baldwin and you are cousins, it's going to be fine. And Roger doesn't say anything. He just lifts up his leg and farts. He farts in their general direction. If you've ever seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? Can you think about this? When the Frenchman's on top of the castle, he says, I fart in your general direction. And it's kind of funny and gross and disgusting this is this comes out of a proper respectable islamic chronicle of the middle ages now you we can unpick this story and i do in crusaders and i say is this literally true or is this just a sort of way of ibn al-athir painting all westerners normans franks call them what you want at the time as coarse and smelly and disgusting listen yeah it probably is but it but it touches on a different way to view the beginning of the crusades which is as starting in places like sicily Ibn al also mentioned Spain and Portugal, the, era, the you know, arena of the rest, uh, the Reconquista. This, this he says, you've got to look around the whole of the Mediterranean, see clashes between Christian and Muslim rulers, and the ambition of the Christians to go and attack more Muslim cities. He says you can see all this before, uh, before the 1090s. You can see it all coming if you just have the historical long view. So that's why I take this, as you say, rather earthy and slightly crude and... And um, so also funny, if you've got a childish sense of humor like me, uh, yeah. this why I, take, I take this story, you know, I don't deny it, I'm fairly childish in this regard. I take this story and tell you the story. And the first line of the book is Count Roger Sicily lifted his leg and farted. And I don't you know, you're not going to see a lot of books about history that start like that. And so there's a reason to go in on an earthy course, kind of slightly shocking note, because it's it's for me, it's saying as an author, forget what you've read before about the Crusades. You're going to see it now in a different way.
0: Another way that you look at it differently is that, and and this is where the the title is a bit deceptive. Is you're not just talking about the the men and the women who were uh, you know who participated in the Crusades directly, but you talk about people that were uh, tied to it uh, indirectly or who had encounters with it. And, and I was wondering if you could maybe take us into the the first part of your book, which is focused upon the the, the early decades of the Crusades, and and it really shows, I thought, well, the the diverse cast you're bringing in. It's not just uh, the Normans or the, uh, you know, people from from Western or Central Europe. You're also bringing in Byzantines. You you reference, uh, uh, you know, Muslims in the the Near East as well. Uh, Who, uh, you know, who are you bringing in? Why were they tied to it? And, And what stands out in terms of some of their stories?
1: I think the overall goal in the sort of first the book's divided into three parts and the first part really takes us to tells the story of the First Crusade. But um I was conscious that this story doesn't have like there's no central objective central viewpoint to tell the story of the First Crusade. Usually it's told through the Normans and the Franks and the men who march from west to east to go to Constantinople and on to Jerusalem and uh you know Conquer a lot of territory in Asia Minor, and then take Jerusalem on the 15th of July, 1099. OK, so there are characters, some great characters there, and I do not neglect them entirely. So you've got Bermond, who becomes the first prince of Antioch, you know, and, and Norman from southern Italy, uh, notorious among the Greeks. Um, you've got characters like sort of uh, Peter the Hermit, a great populist preacher, a sort of Steve Bannon in sackcloth of his day going around <laughs> stirring people up to do things that are really not in their best interests and playing on their worst instincts. You've got um, – so those are the the kind of Western characters. You've got you know, Raymond of Toulouse. You've got um, loads and loads. Of, but I'm like, well, what does it look like from the other direction? And so then you can turn to characters like Anna Comnini. Anna Comnini – uh, amazing, amazing character, the daughter of the Byzantine Greek Emperor, Alexios Komnenos. Anna Komnene, uh, who lived to a ripe old age in the 12th century, wrote a book called The Alexiad. And this is a sort of a volume that kind of excuses her father from having made lots of mistakes, one of which is that her father invited the first Crusaders um, to the east and without really thinking through the trouble that they would cause. Now, Anna Cominini is therefore a brilliant pair of eyes, and because she wrote a, a very long book of history, completely biased and full of sort of obvious um, misrepresentations which are in themselves interesting and not not necessarily obstructive to a historian writing about the period, Anna is a is a beautiful and brilliant pair of eyes through which to see the Crusaders coming towards you. So if you intersperse her perspective with that of people like Beaumont, uh, later of Antioch, Beaumont of Toronto is his first name, but then Beaumont of Antioch, and Peter the Hermit. Suddenly, now you have a, a Latin and a Greek perspective, and then if you throw in the the perspective of other rulers, who are, are you know some of the uh, let's take the sort of Shiite Fatimids who are down in um, in Jerusalem, or some of the sort of Sunni Turks who are in the city states of. Greater Syria, again, as the crusaders are coming towards them, suddenly you start to get a very layered story. And um the way I arrange the chapters is that these viewpoint chapters rotate between all these different characters. So you suddenly you go from being with Latins to being with Greeks, from being with Greeks to being with Sunni, to being with Sunni to being with, Sunni, to being with Shia, and then and then you roll back around again. And the aim there really was to try and get these voices to talk to each other it's almost like a conversation over the course of the book and and so you get a, a breadth of perspective as a reader but you also see these people not only as they see themselves but as they are seen by others and, and I think for me that that's you know on the one hand it allows you to deliver very personal exciting amusing anecdotal storytelling because you, you're sticking with an individual character but subtly behind that it gives you layers of uh, of perspective, of historical perspective, um, and it la- allows you to show people's biases uh, without having to go into long passages of sort of historical exposition. Of to what degree can we trust this piece of evidence? <laughs> nah, nah, never mind that. You show it by showing somebody else seeing the same things in a different light. So, this is you know, I've been working like nearly fifteen years, and and I think this is like i'm just trying to get more sophisticated with my historical storytelling whilst also remaining kind of direct and anecdotal and fun right mm-hmm.
0: and, and the way you do it is you don't get at the same time as you're telling stories you don't get too bogged down in them you're you're, you're gradually advancing the reader through uh, the events so you start with the initial discussions about invading north africa you have the shift you do reference urban and his you know his, his famous sermon and then you take them through the first crusades and that takes you through the first part of the book and then you get to the second part of the book. How does the perspective start to change. How, how does the focus start to change uh, that to the degree that you created that division between the parts.
1: Right, so the, the, if the first part of the book, uh, the first of the three parts, takes us up to the First Crusade, I, I then like I can and I can remember writing it because I'm I'm standing in the room at the moment talking to you in the room that I wrote this book and sort of scratched my head and paced back and forth like sort of the tears rolling down my face of frustration. Um, I got to the start of the first part. I'm like, okay, so we it's kind of resetting here for the 12th century. We've got to show the Crusader world for the story that's going to build. Now, the story of the Crusades in the 12th century is really a story. Of the, the the attempts of the West, let's say, to use a very crude term, to come to terms with what they had created out of the First Crusade—a set of Crusader states in the East, Kingdom of Jerusalem, Principality of Antioch, County, County of Tripoli, County of Edessa—as well as dealing with the fact that there's now a crusading theater in. Spain and Portugal, as we now call them, the Reconquista—that's been given crusade privileges—and another front opens in the Baltic: Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia—you know, northern Europe—from the 1140s onward. So I was like, right, I need to show this world, and not just sort of survey it in the historian's voice. I need a character to show it. And so the character I lighted on to do that uh, was a character I would only see fleetingly in most histories of the Crusades. His name would come up, and then he would—he would really just vanish again. He was called Sigurd. Jerusalem Ferrer, King of Norway, first major Western king ever to visit the Crusader states. And Sigurd is a gift to a narrative historian, because Sigurd was a Viking. He was a Christian Viking because Norway he was from Norway and um at this point Norway had converted to Christianity, but only relatively recently, and so the sort of Viking instinct to get in your boat, go miles from home and kill people and plunder had not vanished. And Sigurd became king of Norway at the age of 13. He became king of Norway because his father, Magnus Barelegs, went plundering in Ireland and got hit in the head by an Irishman. Sounds a bit like a Scorsese film. And, <laughs> uh, and died. And so Sigurd becomes king. He's 13. By the time he's 17, he's, you know, he's, he's got two half-brothers who also have a claim to be king. He decides to get out of the kingdom for a bit. And he decides to go where the action is, kingdom of Jerusalem. And he goes on this journey by boat, by ship takes him from Norway, Scandinavia to Jerusalem. Now, if your geography of, of like Western Europe and the Mediterranean is shaky, let me tell you, that means doing what Sigurd did, which is going via England, France, Spain, Portugal, as we call them now, all the way uh, through the Balearic Islands. He goes to Sicily, you know, this is Southern Italy, and then he goes across to Jerusalem itself. Now this is an enormous journey of hundreds and hundreds of miles. But he does it. And if you, if you sit on his shoulder, as, and all the way he's fighting against Muslim pirates and Berber kind of warriors, and he's raiding cities like Lisbon then in, in, in Muslim hands, he's fighting, he's plundering, he's taking so much treasure, they attach it to the mast of the ships, and they glint in the sunlight. So, but if you sit with Sigurd on this journey, you get to see through his eyes the entire crusader world. And you don't then need, as the historian, to start to keep interjecting and, and saying, at the same time, such and such was going on over here. You just, you follow his path and use his eyes to catch up on this entire world. Um, and he has these amazing adventures. He goes to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. He gets a shard of the true cross, you know, the holiest relic in Christendom. He goes to Constantinople and sees the Byzantine emperor and has great civic games for him. You know, he rides, he swaps his ships and horses and rides all the way over to Norway. But it's, fundamentally, it's his journey that is your journey as the reader and his eyes are your eyes. And as, as a vehicle for setting up a world that's about to change and morph and develop, he you know could not be a more perfect character and he couldn't be a more perfect character because he's weird. He's a Viking crusader. Like, did you ever hear about one of those before? Uh, I mean, we don't, we don't close our eyes and think, ah, yes, crusader and, and see a Viking. We see Richard the Lionheart, a Frenchman. To all intents and purposes, born in Oxford, but you know, culturally French, long beard, long sword—you know, not a Viking at all. So, what I'm saying is, the second part of Crusaders is, is set up. You know, that the 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 what's the right word for this? Uh, the philosophy of the book is set up right there in this chapter about Sigurd of Norway. It says this is going to be different eyes on this world that you think you knew,
0: and through those eyes. You get a, 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 a very different sense of it. I mean, people think of you know the Crusades. That, that there's that association with the Near East, with with the Christianity, Islam, and what you're what you're just, what you're able to do with Sigurd is you're able to show how the, you know, crusading was something that was applied in different places. You mentioned the Iberian Peninsula, you mentioned the the Baltic, and and how, you know, that might be something that most people are not aware of when they think of the Crusades. And yet it was what the Crusaders, the people at the time, were aware of. And and I think you illustrate quite nicely with uh, Sigurd's voyages.
1: Yeah, and I think it's worth making a distinction in regard to that point between Crusades and Crusaders. Another reason the book's called Crusaders is that at the t- in the middle ages there wasn't a really a word for the crusades and it wasn't like you know you got to 1202 and people were going well it must be time for the fourth crusade the third one didn't work out so well this, this nomenclature <laughs> this whole thing is like is a uh, is historians we're, we're putting that on the past however there was a word in the in the middle ages for crusaders crusignati in latin that you know somebody signed by the cross you took your crusading vows you sewed a cloth, to your clothes, or if you're particularly extreme, you might like carve it in your forehead or brand it on your skin or whatever. You marked yourself with the sign of the cross. You became a crusader. And that was the only distinguishing sort of feature in the joining up. It was like you'd taken your vows, you'd, you'd applied effectively for the spiritual rewards, which were remission of sins, your forgiveness of sins, um, so faster route into the afterlife. Beyond that, A crusade is just where the crusaders are. And so it starts to take on over the course of the story, 12th and particularly the 13th century, you know, many different local aspects. What's a crusade? Who's a crusader fighting against in Spain and Portugal? Well, the Almoravids and the Almohads, you know, this this Berber dynasties, these Berber dynasties who come up from modern Morocco. Who are the Crusaders fighting against in the Near East? Well, sometimes it's it's the Turks, people like Nur al-Din. Sometimes it's Kurdish generals like Saladin. Sometimes it's Fatimid uh, Shiites in Egypt. Sometimes it's Mongols. Sometimes it's Mamluks. You know, it's, uh, wh- who are Crusaders fighting in the Baltic? Pagans. They became, they've applied for spiritual privileges to go attack pagans. They basically nick their their land, their wealth, their trade, their women. So this story starts and who the crusaders fighting in the south france cathar heretics and so this the story starts to take on all of these different shapes as crusading becomes uh, you know morphs and changes um and so to bring this back to the the sort of the guiding philosophy and ethos of the book this is why you take the individuals because then you can get the breadth of story by going through depth, by going through like individual eyes and taking you into strange territory, you see, ah, well, crusading here, let's take it to the Baltic, is a completely different thing from crusading in Spain, is a completely different thing from crusading in Syria. What joins them together is this is this one piece of strange theological gymnastics that says you can be a soldier of Christ. That's weird when you think about it, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus Jesus Christ. If there's one thing that characterised the ministry of Jesus Christ, it was probably, don't kill each other.
0: <laughs> right? I mean, you're, you're talking about a figure who's referred to as the Prince of Peace. And the you, Prince you, of you, Peace! Yeah, you're a soldier for the Prince of Peace. <laughs>
1: yeah. right. You just start, So there's, they go through this, you
0: know, it's from Augustine,
1: and it goes way back to the fathers of the church. But they manage to square this idea that, well... You can kill those people. No, Christ would have wanted you to kill those people because they didn't believe in him. Hang on a second. I'm pretty sure Christ wouldn't have wanted that. But put that aside. It's nothing to do with what I think. They went through these theological sort of contortions. They came out with crusading. And once it had been created and institutionalized through things like you know military orders, Teutonic Knights, Templars, and so on, once it had been institutionalized, once it was there, it could be deployed all over the place and take on local characteristics so that's that's kind of the story of the second and and in a way also the third part of crusaders it's of going into weird wonderful territories exotic places places we didn't expect to see crusading as well as carrying on the story in jerusalem where you do expect to see crusading and saying how is it how does this change when you put it on the ground in a different place that's it what is- i try to get at
0: it's also something that changes over time and this and this takes us to the third part of the book because by the time you get to the third part of the book you open it with with Saladin uh you know uh you know taking Jerusalem back and and how the you know crusaders respond to that uh do, do you find that the uh that that the uh, attitude towards uh these adventures these expeditions changed as as uh now that there was over a century of 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 crusader experiences behind them, people had a different expectation or something?
1: Yeah, I think through the 12th century, so, you know, we're coming out in the back of the First Crusade um, and ending up, I guess, with the Fourth Crusade. Um, you, crusading the big crusades, you know, the ones towards Jerusalem, have that radically different sort of guiding principles. Say the Second Crusade, you know, Crusade of Kings, where you have Louis VII, and of Aquitaine, the uh, you know, King and Queen of France, Conrad, the you know, king, emperor of Germany, uh, you know, major, major Western rulers leading these crusades, partly because their stated political goal is firstly to liberate the city of Edessa, which had fallen to a Turkic warlord called Zengi. Um, this transmutes into a desire to attack Damascus, which fails miserably. I mean, that, that's the sort of political military goal but the the bigger goal is to literally follow in the footsteps of their fathers to say you know what we we we're, we're bad christians these days and we could be doing better you know and our our fathers who fought on the first crusade they they were you know they were better than us. We need to literally walk the same in their shoes, you know, and go crusading just as they did. And they try and, and go on this. It's like historical reenactment, or it's like the Rolling Stones still playing their old hits, right? <laughs> like in their old clothes. It's it's slightly embarrassing and definitely weird. And uh, so that's the second crusade. Third crusade, totally different. Saladin by this time has united the world. The, the Sunni and Shia, well, he, he sort of obliterated the Shiite Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt, United Syria and Egypt under his effective military command, surrounded the Crusader states, destroyed the Crusader army in battle, taken half their cities, taken Jerusalem, taken the True Cross, captured the king. It's, you know, the Third Crusade is shock, horror, throw your hands up in the West. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe we abandoned our brothers in Jerusalem. we better go and do something about it. It's Richard the Lionheart, Philip Augustus, um, You know, the greatest manifestation of their Christian chivalry is to go and fight in the East. The Fourth Crusade, you know, Third Crusade narrowly fails to get Jerusalem back. The Fourth Crusade very different again. This is a commercial crusade, by you know, to all intents and purposes. The Venetians take charge under the leadership of the blind ninety-year-old uh, Doge of Venice, Enrico Dandolo, who leads this extraordinary expedition, basically in pursuit of profit for Venice. I mean, it's got a sort of pious motive. They're supposed to go to Alexandria and Egypt, and they're on. Uh, and fro and thence to Jerusalem in fact they go to Constantinople the greatest christian city in the east and they sack and burn Constantinople and they steal the great you know relics and treasures of the eastern roman empire you know the christian roman empire if you go to st mark's basilica in venice today what do you see four bronze horses stolen during the fourth crusade in 1204 that's a crusade that's nakedly in pursuit of profit i'm sorry that's that's what it is um and you know anyone talking about the fourth crusade automatically sounds like the old guy in the bar telling you that the that the second gulf war was just about oil well i'm sorry in this in this instance <laughs> it was just about venetian profit right so in answer to your, your broad question yeah the, the nature of crusading massively changes as you progress through the 12th and into the 13th century and then when you after the papacy of Pope Innocent III, which straddled the, you know, the turn of those two centuries, all bets are off. Because Innocent starts using crusading as nothing more than a tool of the papacy to attack papal enemies. Now, those can be Muslims in the East. In the Fifth Crusade, which Innocent preaches but doesn't live to see, was legitimately an attempt to win back Jerusalem by attacking Muslims in Egypt. But Innocent also allowed the Albigensian Crusade against Cathar heretics in southern France, which is not the purpose of crusading at all. But these, Cathar, these Cathars in general were sort of vegetarian beatniks. who were doing nobody any harm. The deeper purpose of the, of the Albigensian crusade, the beginning of the 13th century, around southern French towns like Carcassonne, Aubie and so on, is just to help the French crown extend its direct power over areas that had traditionally been rebellious, or contumacious that 's what it's about, and this is not how crusading had been perceived in ten ninety nine it's, it's something totally different now if you fast forward to the middle of the thirteenth century, this has been extended this policy of crusading against enemies of the Pope wherever they might be found has been extended to the point of total absurdity. You have crusades being preached against holy Roman emperors, Frederick Hohenstaufen, and his son Conrad these are This is the Holy Roman Emperor. Friedrich Hohenstaufen, in in the middle of the 13th century, sorry, in the uh, third decade of the 13th century, had managed to broker a deal with the Egyptian sultan to get Jerusalem back on a power-sharing basis into Christian hands. He was excommunicated four times and had a crusade preached against him, the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, today, you'd give this man the Nobel Peace Prize. But in the middle of the 13th century, because of the way... The crusading has has been deployed as a sort of weapon of mass destruction of the papacy. You can now end up with the absurd situation where you know the same people who are leading crusades are the object of crusades. This is nuts, but that's that's where it's ended up.
0: And yet, I find that there is, uh, despite the the, the uh, path that crusades have undergone you know, have taken over the over the centuries that you described there is nonetheless that continuity because you know in those later sections you're describing a, in effect a, a practicality to it that you know as i was reading it it, it tied right back to roger you know this this idea that it, you know that you know for all of the ideology and and the and the declarations of faith that it that there was always this 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 you know practical consideration as to you know what are we achieving, how are we achieving this goal, and how does it you know benefit our uh, agenda as, as, a, as a practical ruler or as a, as a warrior or as a, a religious leader?
1: Oh, don't get me wrong. look they talk a good game, and that's what's consistent all the way through uh, the crusading period. Is Crusaders always talk a good game. Very easy, easy to because this is you know the reason we keep the word crusade in the English language. I think is because it it it, it speaks to this sense of it means you're on a mission with a with a a cause from which you are uh, unyielding and unbending, and that's that's the case in the Middle Ages as well. So you, you know you can we can look at the 14th into the 15th centuries. And see the you know the sort of great flourishing of chivalry, the sort of Hundred Years' War era. You have people like Bussyco, Henry Bolingbroke, you know the, the future Henry the Fourth, first Lancastrian King of England. These guys are crusaders, and they are applying the language of crusade, of holy warfare, to expeditions which occasionally are against non-Christians. You know, both Bussyco and um, and Henry Bolingbroke go up to. Uh, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania Poland to try and and fight a bit with the Teutonic Knights convert a few pagans but they're not crusaders as we would have recognized in in the 11th or early 12th centuries you know it, it's just the language that's been retained and sort of plastered over a totally new set of wars and a totally new set of power and ge- geopolitical dynamics and i think that's that well, that continues, um, in a major way from 1492 with Columbus and Columbus is present in 1492 before he goes off to, uh, across the Atlantic, Columbus is present at the handover of the Alhambra, the last bastion of Islamic rule in Southern Spain, Al-Andalus. And the last Muslim ruler in Southern Spain departs, he, uh, he hands over the keys, to the Alhambra, to the, the Catholic monarchs Ferdinand and, and Isabella. And Columbus is watching this. And now, when he go, when he comes back from the New World later that year, he writes in starkly crusading terms to Ferdinand and Isabella, saying, "You're never going to guess what I found over there." loads of non-Christian people to kill or convert, and loads of stuff that we can plunder. You know, It's the transfer of crusading instincts in other directions. But by this time, crusading is is really something very, very different to the way it ended up. And I don't say that with any nostalgia, because it's not like I'm saying, hey, the first crusaders were good guys, and then it got bastardized. (laughs) I'm just saying that this thing morphs, and we're still seeing it today, to an extent, because the way that say, uh, Islamic states and, you know, the, the whole range of people on the old right, extreme right, people like uh, the, the perpetrator of the Christchurch mosque shootings in New Zealand, they're doing the same thing. They're taking the language and rhetoric of crusade. That those The Christchurch manifesto actually says, what would Urban II have done? And the guy, uh, the, you know, the, the suspect, that is still, under, is still at trial, uh, had daubed the name of crusaders and crusader battles all over his automatic weapons, which he, he murdered dozens of people um, they're doing the same thing they're taking this language and applying it to a whole new set of conflicts which really are now a long way different from where all of this began and that to, to sort of circle back to where we began is why it's important to keep thinking about the crusades what these actually were where they actually came from um, and biggest question of all do we really want to get back there like, do we want anything of this world in our own? You know, this, this sort of centuries of endemic conflict between faith groups, um, wantonly destructive, very, very uh, unpleasant. D- is that what we want? Is that why we keep using the word crusade? I think we've got to be more careful and more thoughtful about uh, the way we think about and talk about the crusades. And that, that if anything, is why I wrote this book.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: I'm standing, I've still got a sword in my hand with which <laughs> I began this conversation. And I've, I've kind of been emphasizing points with it in the air, like a, a madman or a Jedi as I've been going. And I'm now sort of waving it at my wall of my office, which has all the current projects I've got on. And there's several books, a um, couple of TV shows. And a few other weird bits and pieces going on as well. (sighs) I don't even know where to start. (laughs) There's a a lot more coming, put it that way. You know, there's another big medieval history book coming. I I work with a a digital artist as well, based out in, in Belo Horizonte, Brazil. She's called Marina Amaral, and she colorizes historical photographs. And we did a book last year, 2018, called The Color of Time. And it was 200 of her digitally colorized historical photographs. And I write I write the text. Um, and we've got another one of those coming out next year, which is called the world aflame and is a history of the first and second world wars. Um, weirdly, you get some crusader history in that too. Uh, because after the first world war, there's, a, 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 I guess, quite famous American propaganda film. I mean, propaganda in the sense that it sort of was cheerleading for the heroic American war effort from 1917 onwards, called Pershing's Crusaders. Go to the British, you know, in Jerusalem, same sort of period. The British made a film, The New Crusaders. Eisenhower, 44, talking in the language of crusade about liberating Europe from the Nazis. So it's weird how Everywhere you look, even in sort of World War history, you keep seeing things coming back to the Crusades, or at least I do. Maybe that's just confirmation bias.
0: <laughs>
1: well, I can uh, I can
0: uh, definitely understand that when you spend a lot of time talking about a subject, it starts showing up everywhere. <laughs> but, right. Well, well, Dan, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Mark.